We, we then look at those things and appreciate them only in the context of that, that victory. And I think so for me, it's very hard to kind of look at the aesthetics of something separately. I mean, I do it as an artist. Mm. So I definitely do it in my private mind when I develop my own kind of uh, projects. But in talking socially about it, it's very hard for me to separate uh, the aesthetics from the social context in which those aesthetics are playing out, because largely my work is political. following is a conversation with David Pledger. David is a contemporary artist, curator, producer and writer. He's been the recipient of numerous awards, including the 1999 Kenneth Meyer Medallion, and he has worked across Australia, Asia and Europe. On the podcast, we discuss his work and the art world in general. If you like this conversation, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify or follow me on Instagram at Recorded Time Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. Yeah, sending this one out to my man Killer B. Today, art is very important. Um, uh, well, most broadly, I think what art is, is it's irrational, uh, it's mercurial, it's chaotic, unpredictable. And so it operates as a kind of antidote to the, what I would sort of describe the, uh, the secular sacred of Western civilization, which is logic. Uh, and uh, in a time of a global pandemic, it uh, it becomes very, very important to make, understand, appreciate and advocate for art because in this time, both through its process, but the process of making art, but also the process of appreciating and receiving art and participating in it, it allows us to activate those things which in a kind of civilizational moral that uh, the West is kind of um, generated over the last, you know, uh, however many centuries, has got us into a very difficult situation at the moment where we don't understand why things are changing because change is something in Western civilization which is organised and often very hierarchical. So art actually provides an antidote for that. It kind of says, well, you know, it doesn't look like that. What you thought was all kind of vertical and solo-based is actually much more horizontal and nodal and rhizomatic. So you think art's almost a sort of release valve for uh, the rules of society and a way of uh, challenging logic more broadly? Yeah, it challenges the, the, I guess it challenges the rules of society, the, the kind of way in which we've told um, not just society behaves, but the way the world works. Uh, the world really doesn't work in any kind of um, in any logical way. And I think what art does, it, it, because it, if we allow it to inhabit our daily life, and that's what I think is really important, that once it inhabits our daily life, either making it or appreciating or engaging with it, then what it does, it gives us a, a set of um, 
it kind of hardwires us to uh, see change as an opportunity and not just uh, something to be feared. And at the moment, you know, we, we live in this world which is changing every single moment and artists are really, really good at understanding what that means in a daily life. And so artists and the making of art actually have an incredibly important role to play at the moment. And do you think artists are perhaps the most undervalued uh, members of society given the value that they can give to that aspect of society? Uh, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> That's the, that is the reality where artists are undervalued and underappreciated and understood. That That's not... Um, and, you know, I guess we should probably just be quite clear about what we're talking about and the kind of the context that we're really talking about is, you know, Western civilization. There's a whole other set that many, many other cultures that uh, value art and artists very, very differently uh, to the way that the West and Western civilization does. So it's probably a good idea to kind of frame it and then when we want to break out of it, we can kind of say, okay, let's break out and talk about other kind of cultural contexts. But in terms of Western civilization, yeah, that's, uh, and that has been the result of that. Uh, the, the reason why we are in this place is because uh, Western civilization has really hitched its, um, its, its future and present tense to a kind of form of neoliberal capitalism tells us that um, everything needs to be financialized, everything needs to be monetized. And so art becomes a cultural product. And so it, it's devoid of any other meaning other than uh, its financial value. Mm. And so a natural consequence of that is that artists are undervalued because the role and agency that they have in society is simply reduced to the financial. It's not embraced with the social and the cultural. It's actually just one thing, a unit, a financial unit that um, you can quantify with, say, $100 or $200 or $10,000. Uh, and that's really um, meant that uh, art and artists have, you know, have have been marginalised in a lot of ways because <laughs> let's face it, there's there's not a lot there's not a lot of art that gets made that you know uh, is financially viable and that you can kind of make a living out of. Mm. You were saying that the West the Western world has a particular way of viewing art uh, compared to uh, other cultures. Do you think, with the advent of certain technologies such as the internet? And as our experience of the world becomes more homogenised, that's going to go away. I mean, yeah, I'm, I, mean I, I, I imagine, in, you know, 100 years the way uh, a Chinese person looks at a piece of art and the way I look at a piece of art is going to be uh, a lot more similar than it is now, perhaps. It's possible. I think, I think, one, of the, I think one of our sort of mindsets is... Uh, that, you know, the West is really good at is the either or. It's either one or the other. But actually I think one of the things that, you know, is sort of worthwhile changing our thinking around is, well, it can be many things. So, yes, that may be true. Uh, there, may be some, uh, there may be some people in China who will look similarly at the works we look at, but there will be many, many other people that won't. And the reason is because 
um, there's a sort of a, a fracturing of um, of points of view at a, at a time in which we are told there are only singular points of view. And so there's the rhetoric around, you know, the internet's going to create a kind of singular view of the world uh, that we'll all, you know, we'll all see things in the same way. I, my experience at the moment is actually that, um, you know, where there were one or two different points of view, there are now five or six. And I think that will actually um, cascade into uh, the experience of culture and the kind of making of art and the, the ways in which we talk and frame art in a, in a social context. Mm. Do you think that it's possible for a healthy artistic culture and an evil society to coexist? Or is this perhaps where art thrives? Because, I mean, uh, Guernica, for example, was painted under Nazi occupation and, you know, sometimes most important art is uh, created under those situations. It it is a very tricky question because we're looking at it from a kind of historical point of view, aren't we? We look at Guernica and go, oh, it means this now. Uh, Did it mean that then? And so... Uh, you look at other kind of, um, you know, examples of art that's framed around totalitarianism, for example. So constructivist art, you know, was side by side with, um, you know, the rise of Bolshevism that then became communism. Um, and yet you have, you know, by 1930 you have uh, incredible uh, poets like Mayakovsky who, you know, committed suicide. There are many examples of, you know, the kind of, <laughs> the, the, uh, the kind of cultural roadkill of extreme uh, forms of uh, government and power in state in 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 a in a state, uh, you know, in a, in a government. So I, I think you can. It, it is possible, but it actually, but it is the the question is who, when is it decided that that great artwork was made? Would it be decided that that great artwork artwork Guernica was made had the outcome of the war been different? Well, I think Guernica. I mean, it's it's hard to think of a a more specific narrative uh, than than Guernica. I mean, Guernica was specifically protesting the bombing of uh, the town of Guernica by the Nazis in uh, the late nineteen thirties. So, I, I think Picasso was. I mean, regardless of how we um, look back on it now, I think it certainly um, it certainly meant what he was meant that. Uh, regardless of you know how, how context changed, don't you think? I mean, uh, Picasso had a, a specific idea in mind when he was painting it, regardless of how, uh, regardless of uh, what happened uh, after he painted it. I think we, um, I think that's certainly what we've been taught. Yeah, um, and unless you go back to the source, you're probably not really going to, um, you know, make a uh, be able to make a call on that. I, I think the the I think the point that I would like to make about art and how it's um, how it's viewed and in that relationship to an evil society, I'm not really sure what an evil society is, but one that's well, maybe a, not a, so a, a, a dictatorial society, an authoritarian society. Evil's a broad yeah. word, I know, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I, then I then I would say um, uh, again, if uh, the Nazis had won, it wouldn't. No one would. No one would uh, rate Guernica. Well, I think I think if the Nazis had won, Picasso probably would have been killed and Guernica destroyed. And yeah. that kind of, but, but that, but that kind of points to he, he did mean it as a uh, anti-authoritarian painting at the time. 
don't you think? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that's very true. Yeah, definitely. I would agree with that. what he meant by making it. Is that a, is it a, it's, I guess greatness is determined by the winners, isn't it? You're always going to, history, history tells you, history tells you that uh, the way in which you, we appreciate art is actually determined by who profits by it most. Mm. But don't you think there you are know? some there are some values that, uh, regardless of who wins a conflict, there's there's some things which, throughout the centuries, we've identified as that's a value or an artistic concept that we uh, treasure. And I think an anti-authoritarian picture like Picasso's is something that we would treasure, um, and should be. I mean, certainly under Nazis, if the Nazis had won the war, it would it would have been destroyed and never seen. But um, I think in an objective sense, we can still see that as a concept that we would, yeah, idolise and treasure. I think so. There's, uh, I, I like, uh, I watch a lot of um, sci-fi. Mm. Uh, and so I, I, one of the great shows that I've really enjoyed over the last couple of years is The Man in the High Castle. Yeah, I've, I've seen that as well. It's a great show. It's a great show. And I think one of the things that it sort of talks about, it sort of frames the way in which uh, um Ideas are received and communicated uh, in an alternative dimension, in an alternative reality, and so what it what it does for us, and I think it's a it's quite an artistic premise, obviously, because the because um, generated from uh, an you know an incredible writer. Um, that the artistic premise is okay. So what is it that what what are the things that we value in this time, and what are the things that we would value in that time? If certain events uh, turned out another way, and not mm. just another way, what I like about it is in other ways. So it's multiple. So there's sort of a multiplicity of possibilities, which means when we talk about um, you know works that uh, uh, we would agree in in this version, this this version of history, this world that got created as a result of uh, you know probably in the last century the 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 outcomes of the first and second world wars we we then look at those things and appreciate them only in the context of that that victory and i think so for me it's very hard to kind of look at the aesthetics of something separately i mean i do it as an artist mm. so i definitely do it in my private mind when i develop my own kind of uh, projects but in talking socially about it it's very hard for me to separate uh, the aesthetics from the social context in which those aesthetics are playing out, because largely my work is political. Mm. Mm. So those things are connected. Mm. But of course, in Man in the High Castle, the good guys, you know, uh, broad term, yeah. are are the people who lost the war, regardless of the fact that the Nazis won the war, and uh, something like Guernica wouldn't be uh, valued or allowed to be valued by the majority of citizens because they would all be Nazis the art that we still value and the culture that we still value is the culture of the people who lost that conflict, don't you think? So I, I think you can still cut a through line across history and regardless of who's in power or what art's allowed to be shown or not allowed to be shown, there's there's certain values that we can uh, almost objectively value. One of my uh, favourite films is uh, Rashomon by Akira Kurosawa mm-hmm. and Rashomon tells the... Uh, the um, the story of a uh, of of an assault in a forest from the point of view of five different people that saw it, 
and their the way that they see it, the way that they view that thing that occurred, the fact, if you like, mm. uh, the act, uh, is completely different. Mm. And so that perspective, so then perspective actually shapes the way in which you, um, your perspective, your experience of the thing, actually completely shapes the way in which you. Um, uh, you receive it, you value it, and you communicate it. And that's what I think so brilliant about art. Whichever way you look at it, Guernica is a touch point. You know, you're going to get five people who look at that piece from very different points of view and they're going to have a view on it uh, because I guess it 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 speaks it speaks to enough people for it to be uh, beautiful, uh, symbolic, emblematic or problematic. Mm. I was listening to a talk you gave in 2018 and you were talking about the use of artistic processes that would generate an artwork randomly and non-deterministically. And I think this idea of an artwork that evolves organically is really interesting. But what are the conceptual implications of a work that isn't planned versus a work that is planned? Does it make a difference to how we interpret the work? Um, do, do you plan your work? Quite pedantically, yes. But I've... I mean, it's sort of part of my own style, I guess. It's, you know, it's fairly realist to a degree and I've, I've got a certain amount of OCD that compels me to plan them out uh, quite pedantically. <laughs> um, but, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I mean, I probably, I probably don't. I don't plan my work. Um, so I... Uh, and it's largely because I think I have, I'm completely incapable of seeing um, uh, the, the, the boundaries between art forms. I don't, I don't really understand them. I can't see them. And so the thing that uh, I operate first and foremost from is an idea. And so my process is actually about trying to get the most out of that idea and letting the idea run. So sometimes I'm in the middle of the idea, sometimes I'm behind it and sometimes I'm chasing it. So I almost everything I do, uh, the way that it occurs is that it operates randomly and non-deterministically and as a result of that process, the plan arises. Mm. So the plan comes after that process. So it, it often works best when there's, little space, as little space as possible between that kind of, you know, space of not knowing, I call it as being in that space of not knowing, and the plan that gets built afterwards. And it's really like there's two different things going on in my, in, in my, in my way of working, one of which is um, about uh, absolute organisation, you know, organise, because I work, I have to work with lots of different people often. Um, and then the other is about uh, keeping myself and everybody that I work with in that space of not knowing and being very confident in that space of not knowing. Um, and I think that's probably quite um, useful when you're working with large groups of people like an ensemble. Uh, I think of what you see it in uh, sports, for example, like you see the best footy teams operate like that all the time. They never, they never play, they never do the plan. They're always in the moment and the plan provides structure and backup. It's a bit like uh, technique, you know. So if you have a good technique, you, mm. you can rely on, you know, you go, okay, I know that I can do that, so I'm not going to be worried about it. I'm going to trust that the plan will emerge in relation to each artwork I make. Mm, that's interesting. I've, I've often said that, I mean, I think the best 
abstract painters always had a sort of academic uh, training as their as their grounding, and it was a sense that they learned their lines so that they could forget them. I mean, if you if you know all the rules, if you know all the rules that you're uh, if you know all the rules about art, it's much easier to identify where they can be broken. I find so, yep. yeah. So, so you like to find balance between setting up structures uh, that make you competent, no matter what happens. Uh, I don't mind being incompetent, mm-hmm. uh, but in general, I would agree with what you just said. I, I generally, generally, that's the case. But I also have this. Um, uh, phrase I call free radical. So I like to introduce a free radical into every project that I do. So I don't, so I'm, I'm off balance. You know, I need to be off balance in order to make something other than what I was going to make uh, than when I set out on it. And my experience has told me that the, the work I make, uh, if I just stick to the one thing, uh, then the work I make, it's, it, it would be quite fine and good, but it's actually better if I make something other than what I uh, was intended to make when I set out on the adventure of making HR work. And, and something that supports that approach, I think, is, I mean, any artist, no matter how realist or abstract or whatever art form uh, they work with, they'll all tell you that the picture never turns out the way they planned even if it is, you know, like a, they've got a realist style or whatever. Um, we, yeah. we, talk, we talked about it uh, just a little earlier, but do you think artists thrive in a capitalist society or a more socialist society? Well, you know, capitalism has had a very uh, fraught um, time in the last sort of 50 years. So I think back in the days of Adam Smith where aspirational uh, aspirationalism was built into capitalism so that there was a, a kind of social compact in which the worker uh, was necessarily brought into the process of social improvement. Um, that was a different kind of capitalism to the one we have today, which is a, a neoliberal capitalism in which, you know, um, pretty much everything is monetized and reduced to a financial value. So it's very difficult for art and artists to survive in that space because there are, um, because it's, it takes away all of those things that really makes art what it is, which is uh, the, the kind of immaterial, uh, the kind of abstract, the uh, things you can't quantify. Art's like a gas, you know, mm. you can't kind of, you can't contain it. And so, uh, but when you turn art into a commodity, you are containing it. And what you're doing is reducing the properties that make it art. It simply becomes a, a something to be transacted. You know, uh, it becomes a, art in that way is transactional in the way that, you know, um, buying something off the shelf of a supermarket is transactional. So it's very difficult for art to thrive in that environment. Um, a more socialist society. Okay, so I think that um, that you know socialism and capitalism. That binary is probably has probably been devoid for a couple of decades, I reckon now. And what we're looking at is lots of different variations on of the both. theme mm. of both. Indeed, mm. absolutely, mm. Um, and. 
you know, I spent the last month in the Soviet Union. Really? So, yeah. So I was I was there when the, in the last month of the Soviet Union back in, I don't know, it was 1991. You know, I was really, you know, I was pretty young uh, and I was there for, I was, I was making a, I was an actor in a film uh, in Odessa, and but I was also uh, doing research as a as a um, as a sort of performance maker and as an actor, and it I it, I I definitely saw how if socialism goes to communism, uh, then it actually has the same result as a kind of neoliberal capitalist society. It's almost a full circle. It undervalues the undervalues the individual in the same way. Undervalues the individual, uh, incredible inequity, uh, you know, social inequity. There's the rich and then there's the poor. Um, some services are uh, given to a universal, but the quality of the services services are very poor. So I'm I'm definitely not a fan of um, the certainly the Soviet experiment. I think it was a, a failure, a human failure of a, a social experiment. So what? What, where we want to be is sort of uh, both somewhere in between and somewhere that's neither that in, that is in neither of those situations. We want at least a third field to be operating in, a place in which we kind of start with a, a set of values and ethics that are based around um, you know care and compassion, uh, that um, respect difference, um, that kind of have a, has a much more horizontal view of the world. That's non-hierarchical, that understands that we're connected to the natural world. And I think neither socialism nor capitalism uh, really give have, have given a, that a really good shot. And so we are where we are at the moment. But then how, because I'm just struggling to think of a system that would allow artists to uh, make a living, uh, but that was outside of a sort of at least a more dominantly capitalist social structure do you know what i mean like it's certainly under i mean i'd under socialism i'd i'd be against you know uh all artists being funded by the government do you know what i mean it's it just seems like it would be a bit too indulgent of the art form i'd just put my hand up and say i'm an artist and get funding then if if i was that kind of you know if if you wanted to get a bit of money um whereas under capitalism i mean i think it's a bit the more millionaires there are in the world who are you know indulging um, artists and their ideas and buying their works, I think that facilitates artists making a making a living off it. I'm just trying to think of what what a hybrid between the two or or, or just a, a different option could possibly be. Yeah, I mean, look, I probably uh, definitely don't come down on the idea of um, uh, uh, the survival of art and artists being the hands of millionaires. I don't think yeah. that's uh, done it. <laughs> I don't think that's done us all well, which is one of the reasons why, for example, NFTs is such an interesting kind of intervention, you know. Blockchain art basically takes out the the middle person in that Mm. space and I think the conversations around there are absolutely fascinating and, Mm. you know, ones we're going to see are going to roll out and have, you know, considerable effect over the next kind of decade. I think um, so there are some very, very interesting uh, examples in Europe where, uh, artists are given a living wage once they have gone through a series of um, filters in terms of uh, how much time they've spent practising. So in Brussels, in France, uh, some of the Nordic countries, they are they sort of manage to take care of artists uh, in a way that um, values them and understands that they are 
operating in a particular way. It is actually no different to uh, the subsidies that are given to any other industry. It's just that the way in which those subsidies are given are direct to the artists. So uh, in Australia, for example, you know, the arts is probably one of the least subsidised sectors in society. Uh, and that's not good because if you're, you're giving enormous subsidies to mining or to tourism, uh, then, then there's immediately in, in an inequity which is based on um, vested interest. With, um, I mean, one of the solutions I think that uh, might be about going forward and there's had an enormous amount of kind of discussion around um, around uh you know survival for an artist is the discussion around the universal basic income which you get from both the right side of politics and the left side of politics if you want to sort of make those distinctions and the reason why that's good and we did have a little taste of it we've had a number of tastes of it in australia job keeper was probably one uh kevin rudd back in the day uh with the global financial crisis basically dumped a thousand dollars into everybody's bank account and said spend away and that kind of you know, was in terms of research, uh, it, that really helped avert the uh, problems that, were, that other countries had. Um, so there are ways of doing it which uh, don't exceptionalise artists but actually bring artists into the fold so that everybody benefits from the, the same schemes. And I think in that way, artists will, it doesn't matter if you give artists even the smallest amount of security, they will make great work. They're not there. You know, their objective is to make great work, to be the best artist, to make the kind of, to communicate, to speak, to kind of, you know, um, maintain the sanity of society, you know, mm. in some ways. It actually, it can be in some, you know, ways about kind of a social and emotional health. They will do that. They, mm. But if you give them financial support, they will do it way better. No, I, I agree with that. It's, um, it's almost like a system where artists have the security, financial security that they can be as artistic as possible and as original as possible without uh, having to worry about uh, whether they're commercially viable or not. And then if they do become commercially vi viable within that system, then they can thrive off the capitalist system anyway and millionaires can pay for their work on top of that. That's quite interesting actually because it's, yeah, it's so in the early stages of an artist's career, that's the, the real thing that hampers uh, originality and uh, creativity is this is this is someone going to want this on their wall and for it to look like a, a pretty picture for example uh, and with that mindset I, I think you're less inclined to try dangerous things new ideas um, yeah. new concepts that's quite interesting can you can you place value do you think in the degree to which an artwork is understandable by the masses so in other words the, the more widely understood or felt the artwork is the more successful it is yeah, I mean, that's a very good question and I because I've often thought about that in my own practice because I think I've only really made one work that kind of crossed over uh, into, you know, a sort of a really big audience of tens of thousands of people. That was an interactive uh, cinema feature that I made about 15 years ago and I was so, um, I was so uh, amazed watching that play out, like watching how people just kind of responded to that artwork because generally I sit much more on, in the more experimental, uh, you know, 10 years ahead of what's coming. Um, and so, it, so, so to me it's a, it's, a, it's a, I think success is a really tricky 
thing to think about as an artist. Sometimes when I've, you know, touched on mainstream success, I've been very nervous because I've been, I felt like perhaps that's a failure because as an artist I felt that my task is really to be going towards the frontier of things, to be asking questions that, that some people don't want asked and to providing a process to get answers to those questions uh, which, are, which is unfamiliar to the majority. And I've seen that historically, artists that work like that, sometimes they can end up really kind of making a really big uh, and positive and progressive change through the, 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 not just the work that they make, like not just the artworks that they make, but the way in which they make those artworks. And for me, process is absolutely fundamental to whatever value I place on my practice as an artist. But I'd almost draw a distinction between there's a difference between what you're trying to achieve in being sort of 10 years ahead of your time uh, and a, a lot of art uh, that sort of dominates the scene at the moment where you get the sense that it's almost quite elitist and, you know, the language and jargon they use around it is quite highfalutin. And I, I just think it's... I think it's bad for a society when people feel too nervous to ask what's it about or to engage with the art. And I think that's a lot like a lot of my friends, I'll go to an art gallery with them and they're just silent the whole time through because they're too, they're too nervous to say, you know, what they like, what they don't like, what is that about, what's that, you know, what is it not about? Because um, I always use the example of, I mean, if you look at the, the Renaissance, sort of part of what's set, that going was the sort of the desire to make the word of God understandable for the illiterate. So the Renaissance sort of always had its foundation in democratizing understanding, regardless of whether the, the concept was new or original, it was how can we show as many people as possible this idea? And I, I just sort of worry that that's being lost a bit in certain sectors of the art world. What do you think about that? Um, I, I feel like with, there's two things going on. There's the art and there's discourse around the art. Mm. So the art is one thing. So, you know, you go and you go to a gallery and you look at the art and you go, uh, you know, that touches me, I feel like that, blah, blah, blah. If you don't feel like you can say that, then that's a problem with the discourse around the art where mm. people are basically going, oh, you need to be really smart to appreciate it, blah, 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 which of course is, a, you know, is, is a nonsense and it is um, incredibly unhelpful and it is elitist. Okay, so we, so the the process of making art and the way in which you um, talk about it are, are two different things. And I think one of the, the the big problems that we face today is that there's been so little attention to uh, understanding the multiplicity of languages that are required in the art space to talk to a multiplicity of populations. So one of the things I've been really trying to do over the last sort of five to ten years is to be able to have a conversation in this space about art, but also to go down to my local milk bar and have a chat to the mm. uh, to the dude behind the counter, and and you know, so I can go to him. So what do you what have you done lately? You know, and then I go, oh, actually, uh, I just did this, um, you know, big site specific work in a hotel on the Gold Coast, and and he'd go, oh, really, a hotel? What did you do up there? Oh, you know, we had a lot of people in the different rooms and there were lots of people, you know, having something to drink and blah, blah, blah. And the language that I would use to, that I would use, that I would employ in that situation is probably different to the language that I would, 
that I would use to theorise the artwork in another situation or talk about its kind of political impact in another situation. And so I think, you know, the, the context, we, we really have to get so much better about, you know, talking about what we do and how we do it in different contexts and that will, you know, mitigate the kind of some of the conversations around elitism, uh, which, you know, I, I do think are valid. It's a long conversation, but, you know, in, in short, I do think some of those criticisms are valid. I think it's also part of the, you know, the notorious Australian cultural cringe where, I mean, I don't think at least for a long time it's never going to be cool to read a book or to go to an art show in Australian culture. It's, you know, it's like a almost a reverse snobbery. Um, and it's really hard to find a way of talking about your work or, um, or someone else's work without, uh, you know, being viewed as a, uh, you know, being viewed as one of the elitist people. Do you know what I mean? So it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a so fine line. It's interesting about that, Julius, is that um, for the last 10 to 15 years, uh, the rates of, it, of participation and attendance at art and cultural events have far outweighed the rates of participation and attendance at sports events. But, so but, actually, but, but I would still so, argue, sorry, sorry, go on. No, I, I, so I would say that there is a, uh, I mean, I love sport, you know, so I'm a complete, you know, AFL uh, nut uh, and I love sport and, you know, it's part of my my kind of story. But one of the things that I think is is often the case is that um, those of us in the arts are almost always the ones that frame the arts negatively. We, When I talk to my friends who don't work in the arts, about arts, in, and I, if I, I'm very careful the way that I open up that conversation, they're always amazed at the way in which uh, the arts gets taught because it doesn't reflect the way they feel about the arts. But there's so much um, negativity that comes from uh, bureaucracies, from government, that actually does not match with the experience of many people when they go to art events. But I wonder whether that statistic is more to do with the advent of social media. And I mean, I think Instagram's the best thing that's ever happened to a public gallery because, you know, it's now the, the, the thing to, you know, go see the latest, you know, go to the triennial and get a photo in, in front of Rafiq Anadol's work or something without actually engaging with the work. Um, whereas I think people probably engage with sport regardless of whether they go to the events. COVID might have something to do with that. Um, they engage with sport a lot more than they would uh, engage with the art or um, feel comfortable talking about the art. Um, I probably agree to disagree with you on that one. Uh, I, I mean, my feeling is that there's people that'll kind of engage with sport up to the second or third degree, but won't go all the way. And that's the same with art. You know, they'll kind of go along, they'll have a look at something, and then they'll just move away and forget it. Or they'll get a selfie in front of the artwork, <laughs> and, and go, well, that's that's me. That's that that's me done with the art. And the same way that you know they'll they'll follow a game, but they won't become a member of the club. Yeah, yeah, and perhaps perhaps it's elitist of me to think that they have to engage with the work rather than just enjoy it. Um, what can art offer the areas of society that usually emit artistic influence? I mean, does art have a place in, I don't know, the financial sector, in public relations? Uh, I don't think there is a place where art doesn't have an influence. 
I think uh, one of the one of the issues is that we often don't talk about or understand what uh, influence it does have in those in those spaces. Um, so let's kind of talk. I'll, I'll just kind of frame something, which is probably a little bit negatively. But if you look at if you if you did a kind of survey of all the uh, uh, boards, you know, um, the arts boards. They're pretty much people by people across all, you know, banking, mining. Everybody wants to get their hands on being in an art, in an art space. It is a soft target for wealthy, influential people. So it is definitely embedded in that way. And I don't think it's been necessarily to the advantage of uh, the cultural space at all because it's really kind of um, problematised and politicised without any influence being brought to bear in favour of uh, the arts. Although I will say that there has some, been some incredible um, uh, philanthropists that have gone into bat for Australian culture to the government over the last five, six, seven years, and they've really put themselves on the line and I'm incredibly appreciative of them. But I'm not talking about them, I'm talking about the mining sex, the bankers, blah, 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 who actually have made things a, little, a lot more difficult. So I think art ha does have an influence in that space, whether it's uh, maybe, uh, whether it's the artistic sector or the art itself um, is, you know, it can be debated. I have a very strong memory of when I was an actor and I went to... Um, I was in a show uh, from a Melbourne uh, theatre company uh, called Playbox and we went to, um, we're in Tokyo and Seoul. So uh, I've done a lot of work in Asia, in East Asia in particular, and I trained with a number of um, uh, directors over there and that was one of the influences of this uh, theatre company in Melbourne. And we were opening, our opening night at the Tokyo Globe Theatre, and the Tokyo Globe Theatre is based on the Globe Theatre in Stratford-upon-Avon. Um, it was a Shakespeare. And the opening night uh, was uh, put on by a petroleum company that was using the event to land a deal uh, with the, uh, the government, the Japanese government. And so art is absolutely everywhere for good and for bad. What was the Shakespeare play? Uh, King Lear. King Lear, right? Yeah. Right. What's your What's your favorite What's your favorite Shakespeare play? Uh, I love King Lear, and uh, I played Edmund the Bastard in that, and that is one of the best roles ever written for nice a, you know, an actor. You know, just absolutely brilliant. So I, that's a beautiful play. The tragedies, I love the tragedies. What do you think of Hamlet? Hamlet's Hamlet's one of my favorite um, pieces yeah. of art. Full stop. Regardless of the arts or playwrights or literature. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. And, um, I mean, you know, that there's, I mean, there's a whole lot of uh, stuff around Shakespeare, which, you know, is about um, when you unpack it and what it means kind of culturally as opposed to what it means as a piece of art in and of itself, which makes Shakespeare such an interesting artist, I think, in the same way that we're talking about, um, you know, Picasso. You know the things that he made—they're like they become touchstones in the version of history that we're, we're, we're that we are now in the present tense of. Um, but yeah, Kingley's a beautiful, beautiful work. I was um, to what you were saying earlier as well about trying to be sort of ten years ahead of the curve and sort of inventing ideas. I was reading Harold Bloom's—I think it's called Hamlet and the Invention of the Human or something along those lines—or Shakespeare and the Invention of the Human—and he was talking about how. 
certain characters or concepts in Shakespeare, there's no precedent for them before him. Um, he the main the main example he uses is there's no example of uh, the infatuated teenage girl, uh, which is obviously you know such a part of pop culture today. There's no example of that prior to Juliet in Romeo and Juliet, and I just thought that was so fascinating that uh, not only are you speaking to uh, something that's already part of the culture, but you literally invent something that then perpetuates through life, not just in art. I think Shakespeare is very interesting in, you know, kind of when you talk about performance because uh, there is fairly strong argument that what he wrote was collectively, was the collective effort that he wrote with a bunch of actors that he had in mind and he um, and he altered and changed those things. And there was a you know incredible contribution by everyone collectively about what they wanted to do, the roles they wanted to play, the stories that were of interest. And so, you know, when I think of Shakespeare, I think uh, it's a little bit different to maybe others. I think of Shakespeare as a <coughs> as a um, as a kind of a, a collective uh, building and creating. Um, you know, literary artworks to be performed that became timeless because of the way in which they were made. And once he's made them, they live organically. They sort of, and, that, and they're, they're inter- an example of that is they're interpreted uh, so differently in every iteration of them. And, uh, you know, people won't necessarily follow the period details of the time. Hamlet's, you know, uh, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet was set in late 19th century Russia rather than, uh, than in 16th century Denmark. I think my favourite uh, cinematic version of Shakespeare is Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, and yeah. uh, that was, yeah, that just that. When I, I remember seeing that and thinking, how that is the most incredible example of an editor, and I can't remember it's Jill somebody or other, brilliant editor, uh, and it was like she edited to the iambic pentameter, so oh, yeah. it's, it's rhythmic. It's so rhythmic that they're kind of editing that. Um, uh, she did with that. It was, a, it was a really beautiful way of kind of viscerally embodying language. Could you just for the listeners describe what iambic pentameter is? Yeah, so it's basically uh, it's um, in each Shakespeare line there's what they call five feet and in each foot there's two beats. So it would be um, uh, what's a line? To um, be or not to be, that is the question. It's like, exactly. Yeah, so to yeah. be that's, uh, to be or not to be starts on at the end of the first line, uh, but then you have to be or not to be, that is the question. And then you have irregular things in there. But when you say those words as an actor, what you do, what you're aware of is that there's this incredible structure that you can rely on all the way through. It's a bit like what we were talking about before. Shakespeare, mm. when he built the structure, he would also, um, you know, disrupt it. So he'd have these irregular beats and then he would have these pauses. And so you got a kind of sense of how to play each role simply by the way in which the language was constructed and understanding the underlying rhythm. And it's almost, uh, yeah, to what we were saying, sort of having structures, it's counterintuitive because you'd think having structures would prevent you from being creative, but quite the opposite. Having having that framework actually allows you to be comfortable in doing whatever you want with it. Indeed, yeah. Could you describe your work and perhaps go into detail describing one or two of your pieces? Yeah, I mean, I probably think one of the main things that I think of when I make work is around uh, the use of humour. 
So I think if you're in, if you're an Australian artist, uh, people don't take you seriously unless you make them laugh. And so humour uh, is really something that is embedded all the way through uh, my work as an artist and as a curator. And it's a special way of describing humour. And there's um, a Mexican uh, poet, Octavio Paz, and he has this phrase which is humour renders everything it touches ambiguous. Humour so renders everything it touches ambiguous. Can you explain that? So Yeah, so, so it, what it means is it opens up the possibility of many interpretations for what you are proposing to because, an audience. Because everyone has a dif- different sense of humour perhaps. Because everybody has a different view of life and mm. one of the critical uh, elements of a view of life is how you uh, is how you look at the world through the through the prism of humour, and so I would say so if if I'm gonna, if I'm working on something that's directly political, um, then I definitely use uh, a certain kind of humour in that place, which allows the audience multiple points of entry into it. Um, so if I'm doing um, so one of the one of the pieces. Uh, uh, I'll talk about an older piece and then a much newer piece. And the old, an older piece was a, a version of what was called K, which was at Melbourne Festival and then Seoul International Performing Festival and the Vienna Festival. Uh, and that was a kind of riff on Kafka's The Trial um, and uh, uh, Orwell's 1984 and um, Fahrenheit 451, which is a brilliant sci-fi novel um, by I think Bradbury. Uh, and so in that space, so it's basically it was a response to 9-11, so it was made in 2003, 2004, and it looked at the way in which um, a kind of uh, the, the way in which civil liberties were taken away from people in order to maintain order in a kind of Western uh, view of the world when it was so disrupted by 9-11. And so it's, it was really important the kind of, because it's quite a uh, dark piece, so it's very important to kind of have moments of humour in that which um, disrupted the, 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 the logic of fear that I was trying to kind of critique through that space because every time you disrupted it, it meant that the audience had an agency in understanding what it would mean for them. Mm-hmm. So if you make them laugh just a little bit or if you give a lightness of tone or put something in that's unexpected or that, 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 that looks at something from a way that they don't think they're looking at, then it really kind of means that they start to be completely present and involved in the work. Mm-hmm. So that's really important, particularly when you're doing really directly political work. And then another piece is what I was talking about before, a piece that I, I did probably a few years ago, up on the Gold Coast called Hoteling and was really occupying a hotel uh, for 24 hours and putting a series of artworks through the very different spaces in the rooms, outside on the tennis court, uh, in the swimming pool, a, a series of visual artworks uh, and performances that kind of crossed over from burlesque to site-specific to, you know, kind of dramas um, and they that really what you needed there where humour played uh, space in that was actually to um, allow the audience to feel comfortable in being in a in a place that they were always being moved on from. 
So they were going from one room to another. So you needed to kind of create a, a logic that was based in humour so that they could enjoy the this process of not knowing because in a lot of ways they were the kind of the protagonists in the whole piece because right. they were telling the story of the hotel in their responses to, you know, 15 different artistic iterations. I, I That point about ambiguity is great, I think, because I've always thought the greatest legacy of Warhol was those interviews. He would, whenever someone asked him what his work's about, he would always resist giving an explanation for it and he'd just be quite, you know, airy-fairy about it and um, and just he, he would just say, oh, it's it's, it's about whatever you, you want it to be about. And I'm sure he had in his mind what it was specifically in a, about and he had in his mind what he wanted people to think it was about. But as soon as you set in stone what an artwork is about, it becomes a little conceptually more 2D. Do you know what I mean? It's it's less rich and uh, less interesting. I think that's, I mean, he's, I mean, he's a fantastic artist. Well, I, my favourite piece of his is a book that he wrote called uh, The A to Z of Andy Warhol or something like that, and he basically has this internal monologue with himself throughout the whole thing, and it's very, very funny. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really does sort of uh, in his in his own way he he really attends to that idea of you know everything he touches becomes ambiguous and out of that there is um, there is a continuum you, he, his work has a continuum still past his uh, you know being alive that continuum is really because the questions that he asks when he goes into making a work. Uh, become a better set of questions as he processes through the making of the work. And that's absolutely been a fundamental for me. If I start a work and I'll start with a question, I want to have a better set of questions when I come out the other end Mm. and maybe have some answers along the way. Mm. And that point you made about uh, the comedic nature of Australian art is quite interesting as well because if you had to say what, you know, Brett Whiteley, Sidney Nolan, Howard Arkley, all these people have Adam Cullen. Everything they have in common is this sort of tongue-in-cheek uh, approach to making making work. I think they used to call it, you know, larrikin art, you know, yeah. had that kind of larrikin attitude to it. And I, I definitely feel like, you know, that, that had a massive influence on me. Mm. When creating art within a specific format, and this goes to what we were saying earlier, whether that be painting or sculpture, an artist can usually establish a style by the way he or she uh, uses techniques within that format. One one can immediately tell the difference between a Manet and a Velazquez, for example, just by the way they apply the paint. With performance art, is it much harder to leave your own stylistic mark just because the, the medium bodies in the case of performance are not very different aesthetically to bodies in any other performance work, like every... Um, your medium is a human and there's humans in every performance piece. They're not filtered through the artist's own lens in the same way they would be in a representative picture. So does it take quite a sophisticated artist to make a successful performance piece and to really leave your mark stylistically? Um, I think, um, I don't know if it's a sophistication, I think it's a certain kind of way of looking at the world and looking at at bodies. Um, So so, for example, if I walk down a street, I will look at the way 
Uh, I will always look at the way somebody walks. I'll look at the way they their feet meet the earth. I'll look at the relationship between their upper body and their lower body. I'll look at the relationship of their centre to gravity, a centre of gravity to the to the to the to the surfaces that they're work are walking on. I'll look at any idiosyncratic gestures that they might make, and as I'm that's happening in real time and quite quickly, because most of my kind of um, a lot of my sensibility is choreographic, so I'll look at the, I'll look at a body. So every body to me is so different. So every physical body to me is so different. So if I'm going to make a work which has not like has have 10, 15 bodies in it, then I will absolutely see through my own experience different a, a, a difference. There's a, it's got a different tone, a texture, uh, and then I'll try and put those textures and tones together or set them apart and through that you kind of get an alchemy of uh, sort of physical alchemy of, of bodies in space so for, for me it's a way of um how you kind of uh are socialized as an artist and my socialization process was through football so i see i see the world in a way that i see a footy game so, what, so, you know, when I was younger, that's what my ambition was to be. It was to be a, an AFL footballer. And so in that space, I, one of the most important things I took from that is having a kind of sense of myself as a centrifugal force in, in a, a group of bodies so that I would have that sense of knowing what's going on behind me and beside me and in front of me. And in that way, I would, that would be my artistic lens for operating in a space with other bodies that I could then ask to talk or move, uh, be silent or do any number of things. So you were so, so you so you were always trying to become more attuned to people's physical idiosyncrasies than other people would. And I, absolutely, and that word that you just used, attuned, is completely fundamental to my kind of practice around. Uh, you know, I have, a, I have a way of working, a series of protocols called body listening, and it's all about tuning in to other bodies in space. And so body listening essentially is something that you do before you go on stage. You sort of tune into each other as an ensemble of performers and then you go out and make the work. And that doesn't matter if you're making the work on a stage or if you're making a work, you know, in a distributed space like a hotel. You want to have, be sharing a kind of, a visceral sense and understanding of each other at any given moment during the performance. You almost, you almost become more physically articulate. That's right, exactly. And that's the language part of it, which is really critical to, you know, a performance, a live performance space. What sets apart your style in performative works from others? What's your style, would you say? Uh, I would say that um, I have... I, it's because I have no um, loyalty to any art forms. And so that really, so if you were to look at my kind of whole work as an artist, then you'd need to track certain things through it which are don't make sense in a kind of conventional uh, artist story. So you'd need to look at the kind of physical and the linguistic the live performance, the site-specific, the media work. And the thing that kind of distinguishes 
my work, I think, is that it isn't based in an art form. It's really based in an idea. And the idea is something, if I can't sleep at night because I've got this idea in my head, then I will make an artwork about that idea. Mm. I That's interesting you say that, actually. I sometimes if I'm like almost half asleep, but then an idea occurs to me and I'm just paranoid that I'm going to forget it by the morning, I'll get up, quickly write it down in my notes and then just oh, can rest. Um, I do that all the time, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what do you think art should strive to achieve? And do you think there's a barometer you can use for how successful a work can be because of that? I think it's a question that, you know, bugs us all, you know, most of the time. Um, and maybe it's not worth answering. It's a bit like Andy Warhol, you know, that example. I remember somebody else was telling me a really great um conversation that they witnessed between Jeffrey Smart and a moderator and he just refused to say what the artworks meant mm. you know and I think there's real there is real freedom in that and there's a real social responsibility in that and there's also a sort of a respect for other people's points of view because what I'm what I make and what I mean or try to mean from what I make may not be the same as the person that is receiving it. In fact, I hope it's not. I hope they get some sense of it. But they might feel and think something completely different to what I'm intending them to feel and think. And so in a way I feel like there is a, that the artist, part of the artist's role in that discourse is to become redundant mm. so that the audience, has, so you give enough space in the work that you make for the audience to make of it what they wish and for and for and that that completes any meaning that that work might have. Uh, I think the public domain is where any artwork really achieves its meaning. Mm. And so, you you might like for it to mean something, but you you can't have control over that. Mm. You can't. You, and you can talk about what it might mean for you but you can't have control over what it might mean for someone else. But do you not think that you still at least want them to be, someone could interpret a work differently, but you still want them to be engaging with the same conceptual world that you're putting forward? I mean, someone could view Hamlet just as a revenge play or someone could view it as a play about Christianity and Providence. But there's still, I mean, you could almost say, a barometer for how good an artwork is, is can you make them experience a certain concept, but a concept with enough flexibility that it can be interpreted individually? Uh, that is definitely one way of, uh, of approaching it, definitely. I mean, and I'll just be the devil's advocate to myself and to you, is that sometimes I actually want uh, an artwork that I make to be uh, received in one very specific way mm. because I think it's very important that 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 position is put forward broadly into the public domain. I, I, I would, you know, I hope that that is, uh, you know, I hope for a certain reading of my works. But I've, from experience, I've found that um, where I get most of my reward and learnings is if I listen to what other people tell me about 
what they've experienced and how they've experienced it because sometimes that singular narrow frame that, you know, as artists we sometimes just have to go in order to make something, mm. you know, comprehensible and, you know, aesthetically powerful. Um, sometimes uh, when the audience engages with it, we understand that it actually has, it can have that meaning, but it can also have lots of other meanings in there. And I think they're the points at which for an artist you go, you learn a lot about your practice. Mm. When you sort of develop. Yeah, because, of course, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of an example. Like if Turner does a, a, a painting of a landscape, he obviously doesn't want people to think, oh, this is a painting about, uh, uh, I, I don't know, something something not to do with nature. He wants it to be part of that world. But the reason perhaps why nature is such a good theme then and why it's been used by so many artists is because it's broad enough but also we all experience nature differently and individually and subjectively um, that we can all we can all look at a painting by Turner and see something different to the person next to us despite it being about nature if that makes sense I think that's very true and I think with somebody like Turner you're also uh, you know he's also what I would call an emblematic artist and so it's not just the thing itself it's the oeuvre that one understands that he's been working in uh, that kind of seeps into the cultural consciousness that then allows you to have a lot of other conversations, which is not just about nature, uh, which is about the effect on nature and what we're doing with nature. Then you go into climate change and you spool out into that. So, you know, that's what's really interesting about those artists that are emblematic. I mean, for me, I think the artist that probably does that uh, mostly these days is Olafur Eliasson. Mm, he's, uh, he's, he's incredible. I saw a documentary on him recently, actually. One of the genius, geniuses, one of the few geniuses alive today, I think. Indeed, yeah. Um, and I guess that's also why, probably why war humans, whether it's a nude or a portrait, and nature have been the dominant genres over the years is because they have that element of uh, a broad concept that can be approached on an individual level. What do you think of Indigenous Australian art? <laughs> broad broad question for you. What do I think of Indigenous? Because, uh, I mean, so I, think, I, I just put, I, I think it's sort of, I find it startling how, I mean, I think Indigenous, Indigenous Australian art is one of the most um, original types of art in our culture today. And, and I think it's, despite it being obviously one of the oldest, but I think it's sometimes undervalued because, it's viewed as what more sort of culturally insensitive people might call native art or it's seen as a provincial art form. And I've said this to guests before, but I think if someone like Tommy Watson uh, sort of just emerged in the early 20th century outside of the context of being an Indigenous Australian artist, I think he'd be more famous than uh, Jackson Pollock. And Indigenous artists, for some reason, are not given the same sort of individual esteem, which we are more than happy to give to Jeff Koons or Julian Schnabel which I just find kind of ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a massive question and, uh, you know, we don't have um, uh, a First Nations person in this room to have this discussion with us. So um, from my very white perspective, I think when I, what I've learned from uh, my Aboriginal Australian artist friends is that um, art and 
culture, art and society are not separate. And so when an artwork, when an artist makes an artwork, it has uh, significance past its aesthetic value. Um, and for me, I guess that is an ambition that I would love to have, that all art has, that it has uh, significance beyond its aesthetic value, that it tells a story, it kind of uh, places us in with a kind of a cultural and historical and multi-temporal ambience that, mm. you know, I think uh, is, is, you know, inscribed so, um, you know, it's, it's inextricable in Aboriginal art. You can't separate those things. And so in, therein lies so many great lessons for the way in which art in a, in a, in a Western context has played out and has been reduced. It's very hard to reduce, you know, Aboriginal art to just a financial value because the meanings have so much resonance mm. culturally and geographically and, you know, within each, each group, each family. Um, and when you sit down and look at, at one piece of artwork, you know, I don't know whether it's, you know, I don't know whether it's, a con, you know, a contemporary artist like, you know, Richard Bell operating in that space, you know, there is stuff that you, you have to listen to the story behind the way that thing, why mm. that thing is made, how it's made, and there is the value and you, you can't just financialise it and in that way it is a very significant in the kind of broader context of any conversation about art because you can't disentangle the social and the cultural from the financial in a way that seems to be much easier in a kind of, you know, uh, non-Aboriginal Australian context. Mm. But regardless of what the works is selling for, I just find it kind of ridiculous that someone like uh, Tommy Watson isn't sort of held in the same esteem by Australia as we hold someone like Howard Arkley or... Brett Whiteley. I mean, I, I view him as a superior artist and a lot of Indigenous Australian artists is uh, superior to um, some of the more sort of, as you said, artists from the Western canon living in Australia. But, uh, who, who are some of your favourite artists? Um, yeah, in any, top five. In any, in any, <laughs> top five for sure, in any medium as well. Uh, I Look, I think, you know, I, I follow Oliver Eliasson, you know, an incredible thinker um, and um, um, a maker of work and, you know, very conceptual and really concerned with the things that the matter of our times. Um, in terms of that kind of performance art space, I, you know, I do, I do have a soft spot for Marina Abramovich uh, and Joseph Boyce. Um, you know, in terms of like dance theatre and performance, uh, Pina Bausch. Uh, very kind of, you know, kind of really developed the dance theatre genre. You know, I think in like, I don't know, maybe uh, pop music, I, you know, in terms of like a body of work, I'm a you know, massive fan of Radiohead. I kind of look at their work and I go, that is really a significant body of work. That's quite incredible. Um, I, you know, but I would also, uh, uh, I would also kind of, I feel like even naming artists makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable because I think the most, the artists that I like most or that I've kind of am most interested in other is the unknown artist, the one that in 10 years' time we're going to look back and go, oh, they were doing that then. 
and look at the effect they now have. And that's really what I'm so interested in, in trying to find people like that to work with and learn from to see, you know, how that kind of affects my practice in terms of my thinking and my collaborations and my my sort of way of making a world out of uh, the art that I that I create. Well, are there any people you know who fit that description, who are sort of unsung heroes who in 10 years will, uh, you think, uh, will be looked back on with uh, a lot more praise? Uh, there's hundreds of them out there that I'm looking at at the moment. So <laughs> I've just, you know, I watch, you know, I watch and I look and I learn and I say, I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it, because, you know, um, Failure is such an important part of uh, becoming a, an artist and, you know, I, I, I love it when I see uh, artists that, that fail uh, because I, I know that if they're, if they're going to become that one of those unknown artists in 10 years' time, then that failure that they've just had is going gonna, is gonna to be where they have all their learnings and the work that they make from there will be, you know, so interesting. Um, I suppose I'm in, I'm kind of curious a lot about um, the, the 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 way in which artists are going to you know get their hands on and operate new technologies like blockchain art and what that means for them um, and how you know sort of a, a, a something as weird as an NFT changes the game and does that then change the way in which artists make their work. Um, because they have this opportunity to timestamp something, uh, does that then bring money to them or does that whole process about that moment kind of, you know, concreting a moment and saying I own that moment, does that kind of valorise the ephemeral in a way that we don't valorise the ephemeral mm. because you can paint, you can hang something on your wall and that's a concrete thing? And then what does that do to the artist? So does then conceptual art have another kind of, you know, a really kind of massive momentum because actually you're talking about ideas and concepts rather than something that you can, you know, uh, show or hang, you know, I'm surrounded by, you know, all these beautiful things in my in my uh, house, beautiful artworks. Um, but what is the thing that's going to, is, is is the ephemerality of a way or a way of talking about art going to be the thing, it's going to be a new art form? You know, I'm, I'm curious about what, what it looks like uh, and how it sounds and how the body feels those things uh, as much as I am about the way we think about those things. I'm still trying to wrap my head around NFTs. So are they, it's essentially just copywriting a digital art piece. Is that what it is? Uh, it's it is a little bit like, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna have a I've been doing a little bit of work on it, and I, it's a bit like you are concretizing uh, a thing that's already been made and is out there, and you're saying this is the first version of that, and I own the first version of that. Mm. So um, let's say uh, so it, it might be. Um, uh, cover art on an album, you know, that uh, somebody um, is saying is now worthwhile, uh, worth, worth something. You know, that artist Beeples who kind of, you know, did that thing 5,000 Days, which is mm. sort of all these little 
mini things of you know that's a that's that's become a, a non-fungible token that somebody's bought for so, so however many million dollars so it's the first iteration of that it's like your uh doesn't stop it being repeated but it means that you own the first moment that, that came into being it's gonna and it's that, gonna change the whole dynamic between reproductions and originals because i could of course just get uh, a reproduction of a high quality reproduction of the mona lisa and put it on my wall um, but the reason people buy um, artworks like the mona lisa is because there is a difference between the original piece and the reproduction that would go away i think in the context of uh nfts Indeed, and also what would go away is the uh, the agent and the gallerist, mm. the middle person. They will mm. disappear, uh, and I think that's a can be quite attractive to some artists for that mm. to be the case. We basically just get a deposit of a certain amount of money in your directly into your um, bank account because the ownership of that artwork that was you know. released 10 years ago is now uh, closed off because it's on any number of servers around the world and no one else can own it but that one person. It's almost like the artistic equivalent of uh, Bitcoin. Uh, It sits exactly in that space, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So blockchain technology is going to change financing, change art, and I think that actually... Again, that's that thing about change, you know. There's the there's an opportunity for artists to, you know, make something because I think one of the big stories over the last year and a half is that we've been so disenfranchised um, from the uh, mainstream economy. From the institutions from, in particular. And uh, from institutions. Well, that's, and that precedes the, the pandemic without a doubt. There's been a massive disenfranchisement of the artists from the institutions. And so we're looking for, we're, we're right for uh, ways of taking some control out, over our, uh, our our practices and our, our the things that we make, the artworks we, we create. Mm-hmm. And things like Instagram and uh, social media and just websites in general uh probably going to be a viable substitute for the commercial gallery moving forward as well. I mean, if you've got 100,000 followers on Instagram, that's bigger than any mailing list that a commercial gallery has. I think one of the things that I am uh, working on at the moment, and it's a, you know, I think it'll, it's going to be a big story for all of us, is that there's a new field of aesthetics and that that has been brought about by, particularly in um, for live events, is um, how to develop uh, an aesthetic space um, that can live online that is not simply the um, the recording of an event that takes place live without an audience. So there's a whole opportunity for us as artists to look at the ways in which we communicate what we do in a way that's not live performance, in a way that's not an online version of a live performance without an audience, but is the third thing altogether. And that's one of the things that I'm spending a fair bit of time on with one of my projects, trying to look at what that is going to look like over the next generation. Do you think you would have been an artist if you'd lived 300 years ago? I mean, do you specifically warm to the kind of art that is only possible today, such as video performance and sound works? I think there is something that is in 
inside me that uh, wants to make art, you know. I mean, I just the last few years, it's so bizarre. I've sort of been thinking, well, could I, could I just convert the, the shed out the back that's stacked with, you know, lots of, you know, stories from our lives as a family, get all that stuff out and start painting. You know, and I know I'd be a terrible painter. I know I'd be absolutely shocking. But the impulse to make art is just sort of innate for me. Um, and so it's possible that 300 years ago I would have that, but it's also possible that I would have done something that was that was um, highly physical, you know, that would just kind of uh, make my body central to whatever it it would be whether or not that would be farming or fighting or whatever. There's something, you know, certainly as a younger person, my, my, my everything revolves around, you know, le uh, levels of fitness and capacity and, you know, my ability to kind of be able to read physical situations. So I, I think that was that would be another aspect that I might kind of, um, you know, uh, that, 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 that I'm, the 300 years ago, it depends on where, if it, where I was 300 years ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Might, you might have been a yeah. Shakespeare, Shakespearean actor, David. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have minded having a shot at having a chat to Will Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because I've been reading the work of this social psychologist called Sheldon Solomon recently, and uh, he talks about how every action uh, we, we do. In, in life, whether that's taking a sip of coffee, whether that's deciding to do a podcast, any impulse that we have, however subconscious it is, it's all done in relation to our fear of death. And I think artists and what motivates artists to create, whether they know it or not, is a possibility that it's it's the sense of posterity, the idea that, I mean, because when, when you, I, I think death is a scary concept because you're scared about being forgotten and you're scared about the world going on without you. And the more work you make and the more work you make that is loved and respected by, by people, that's that's the urge to create good art, I guess, the more that fear dissipates, I think. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. That's definitely a good one. I think the fear of death propels us to do many things. You know, you, you have a, you know, it's a compelling reality for us that we've tried to, uh, we try to avoid thinking about too much, you know, in our uh, this Western logic that kind of, you know, determines what we value in the world. But I think the pandemic has basically just kind of, you know, given short shrift to that and made us think a little bit more directly about the the, mor the mortality of mm. uh, of ourselves as individuals and the species as well. It's been a very morbid year, I think. But, uh, yeah, been tough for you for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks a lot for coming on uh, the podcast, David. It's um, it's been a really interesting conversation, and uh, great to meet you. And thanks to Jane for uh, connecting us as well. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's all good. I, I probably should say because I almost always do in the beginning of these things that uh, I do an acknowledgement that I live and work and dream on the lands of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Absolutely, I usually do that up front. So. Uh, uh, if you can pop that in, that'd be awesome too. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thanks a lot, David, and uh, speak soon. Pleasure, Julius. Cheers. Thanks, Ian.